Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. That's where we'll be today, Matthew chapter 9. You probably are there already before me. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, we'll be in verses 18 through 26 today. Now, we've been going through chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew. If you recall, these are the two chapters in which Jesus demonstrates his authority through miracles, through works of power, through uh, healings and exorcism and things like that. And this section of Matthew really contains three sets of three miracles. Three sets of three miracles. Uh, we've seen two of these sets so far. Now, for example, the first set of miracles, Jesus healed the leper, the centurion's servant, and Peter's mother. And then the second set of miracles, Jesus calmed the storm, cast out the demons in the Gadarenes, and healed the paralytic after forgiving his sins. And now we're entering into this third sequence of three miracles, but we actually get a two-for-one deal this morning. Uh, we have two accounts sandwiched together. And they, they, they actually do go together very well. But Jesus is going to perform two miracles in our text this morning. And really, we're going to see Jesus help two people who are on completely opposite ends of the social spectrum. Completely opposite ends of the social ladder. And yet, he cares for them both. Not only that, we're going to see Jesus perform his most incredible miracle yet. As he demonstrates his power over not just uncleanness, but over death. Let's read our text, starting in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her faith, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Let's ask God's help as we come to his word. Our great God, we come to you this morning desiring to learn more about Christ Jesus. Lord, there is really no greater thing that we could seek than knowing Christ more, for in him are hidden all the wisdom and treasures of God. Our Lord, we pray that you would reveal the glory of Jesus to us this morning, that we would see his authority on display by faith. And Lord, that we would see that wherever we might be at, in our background or our position in society, that we have a common need for Christ. We have a common interest in him. That wherever we might be at, we are all equally in need of the same Savior. Lord, help me this morning. Would you sustain me and help me to preach clearly what is contained in your word, that you would be glorified and your people would be helped. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's message is Two Sufferers, One Savior. Two Sufferers, One Savior. We see in the first portion of our text two cases of suffering. Two cases of suffering. Now, if you recall from last week, <clears throat> Jesus is in the midst of explaining to the disciples of John the Baptist uh, the newness of what God is doing in Christ. Right? He's talking about fasting, uh, talking about new wine and old wineskins, and really the new thing God is doing. When all of a sudden, Matthew tells us, while he's saying these things, behold, pay attention, something is happening. And Matthew tells us that a ruler comes in. 
right in the middle of this conversation he's having with John the Baptist's disciples, this ruler comes up to Jesus. Uh, this was the ruler of the local synagogue. That's who this man would be. A man who is not named in Matthew's gospel, but in Luke and Mark is named as Jairus. You may be familiar with that name. Now, this ruler Jairus was the, the lay person in charge of the synagogue. He was the one responsible for the upkeep of the synagogue, but more importantly, he was the man in charge of the worship that took place in the synagogue. Uh, you know, you, you could also almost say he was like the pastor of the synagogue, perhaps, right? He was the man with the highest authority in the synagogue. And this position, being the ruler of the synagogue, was such a prestigious position, you had to get a certificate of authority from the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. This is a big deal. Uh, this ruler was responsible for overseeing everything that took place in the synagogue, and for a religious first century Jew, that was a matter of great importance. In other words, this man that's approaching Jesus in our text this morning in verse 18 is the highest religious official in Capernaum. He is the highest religious official in Capernaum. But as, Joseph, as Jairus approaches Christ, he doesn't do this with an air of self-importance or with pomp and circumstance. He approaches Jesus and immediately, what does Matthew say? He kneels before him. He kneels down at the feet of Christ. And that's what the ESV says. If you have the NASB, it actually gets a little bit closer to the understanding of the word. It's bow, the Greek word proskuneo, to bow, to pay homage. Really a, a word that has to do with worship at times. Mark 5.22 even describes the ruler as falling at Jesus' feet, throwing himself down at the feet of Christ. And we discussed before, because we've seen this posture before in Matthew's Gospel, that this is a posture of humility, of respect, of submission, of reverence. The highest religious official in Capernaum is face down before Christ because something has gone terribly wrong. And he knows there is no hope for that situation apart from Jesus. And the ruler implores Christ. He brings a request to him. He says, Jesus, my daughter has just died. Come lay your hand on her and she will live. It's a heartbreaking situation. Right? It is, it is tragic. Words cannot convey the grief of this father over the loss of his daughter. He's literally begging at Jesus' feet. I'm sure he is weeping as well. And Mark and Luke tell us that this girl, his daughter, she's only 12 years old. But she's a kid. Tragic loss. Right? He loves his little girl. And she's been taken away from him. But this grief, this loss, does not plunge the ruler into a pit of hopeless despair. It actually does the opposite. This loss inflames the faith of Jairus and spurs him to seek out Jesus because he believes that Jesus can actually do something about this situation. Right? This is the last hope Jairus has. I'm sure that Prior to his daughter's death, Jairus and his family had done everything they could. They had paid the best doctors in the region to come and treat her, but to no avail. Right? This is it. Jesus is the last step, the last option. But Jairus believes firmly that with just a touch, Jesus has the ability to bring his little girl back to life. Right? This ruler of the synagogue has such faith in the power and authority of Jesus even that Jesus has power and authority over life and death, which is incredible in and of itself. I think Jairus sets an example for us in some ways. Sometimes when we 
face grief or hardship, there are natural emotions that go along with that. But at times we focus so much on that that we end up in a pit of despair, of hopelessness. And really what Jairus demonstrates for us is that we must come to Christ. We cannot do anything about our trials, but Christ can. And Jesus, compassionate Jesus, as always, right? He does not turn down this man. He doesn't say, Jairus, I'm in the middle of a conversation. Just hang on five minutes. That's not what he does. He doesn't ignore his plea, but verse 19 tells us that Jesus rises up with his disciples, and they follow Jairus back to his home. This is a display of Christ's kindness. Jesus cares about Jairus, about his daughter, about their suffering. Jesus cares. And Jesus has the same heart of kindness towards us when we bring him our suffering, our requests, our trouble. And as they're walking, Mark and Luke tell us that there is actually a crowd here. Uh, the, the crowd gathers around them, and it's such a big crowd. They're so intent on seeing what Jesus is going to do next that they're actually pressing in on him. Right? They're putting pressure on Christ, not just surrounding them, but, but they're actually pushing in on them. Right? Maybe you've been in a, a crowd before at a festival or a concert or an airport or whatever it might be, a subway, who knows, right? That is horrible. That is a horrible thing. But Jesus endures it. He's become kind of a local celebrity, right, we could say, as a result of his miracles in Capernaum. And this crowd wants to get a glimpse uh, of, of what he's going to do next. What's the next great thing this teacher will do? And Mark tells us that's the exact reason they're following Jesus. They're going there to see what's going to happen at the ruler's house. Can he bring this girl back? Is there a limit to his power? They want to know. And the focus of that entire crowd was on the upcoming miracle for the ruler's daughter, right? With the exception of one person. Everybody in that crowd is is just wondering what's going to happen next. Is he he going to do it except for one person? You see, in that crowd, there were two people who sought out Jesus for a miracle that day. Everyone was aware of Jairus. He's a high-profile man. But the other person, nobody saw. Nobody knew. The other person who was there seeking Jesus was not a religious official. The other person seeking Jesus was not a well-known person of the community. But like the ruler of the synagogue, though in a different way, the other person was suffering too, hoping Jesus could help. We meet this other person in verse 20. A woman who had suffered from a constant discharge of blood. The medical term for this is uh, menorrhagia, constant and excessive menstrual bleeding. This is not a recent condition for her either. Matthew tells us she she had suffered from this for 12 years. Same age as the ruler's daughter, 12 years. This was a chronic illness. It was incurable. Mark and Luke tell us she had spent every penny she had on doctors and medical care. So much time, so much money, so much effort, but it had done nothing. Nothing. And in fact, it had actually eventually gotten worse and worse and worse over time instead of better and better. Now, this woman is not in a crisis like the ruler of the synagogue, right? Her world has not been turned upside down in an instant. She's suffering in a different way. She's suffering not in crisis, but with chronic suffering. And that kind of chronic suffering takes a toll on the body. To be sure, some of you are are intimately familiar with chronic suffering. And as it often does, it's had an economic impact 
for her as well. She has no more money left. Mixed in there too is the inevitable discouragement and frustration right, that comes with, with constantly dealing with chronic illness. This woman was suffering deeply as well. But there's another aspect of her suffering we can't overlook. There was a, a, a ritual, a religious aspect. You see, under the law of Moses, this woman was considered unclean. Turn to Leviticus 15 with me for a moment. Leviticus 15. <coughs> Leviticus chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 27. Leviticus 15, 25 through 27. The law had many different provisions for public health, for things like that in the nation of Israel, but there was an aspect as well. Um, God's holiness is highlighted in contrast to the many different imperfections right, that we as humans deal with. And this just goes to show, uh, at the end of the day, right, the difference between God's original design and the effect of sin in the world. But there's a provision in the law for such a condition as this woman had. Reading in verse 25, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. Notice that according to the law, this woman was considered unclean ritually as long as the issue continued. So for 12 years, this woman was considered religiously and ritually unclean under the law of Moses. She couldn't touch anyone else. She couldn't touch anything else for risk of, of making them impure or unclean. And because of this, she certainly was not married, nor she, could she go to the synagogue. In fact, she probably shouldn't have even been in the crowd that day. Right? She faced a life of aloneness because of her condition. But this woman, like the ruler, is, is desperate. Right? She's tried the doctors. She's tried multiple doctors. No dice. No luck. Just like the ruler, this woman has no hope but Christ. And we see her thoughts in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 9. She says, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Right? She has a plan. All she has to do is go and touch the fringe, the outside part of this holy teacher's garment, and she will be made well. After all, she, she probably knows about all the other miracles that Jesus has performed. But if he has such power, then just a light touch of the fringe should be enough to heal her, right? That's what she's thinking. Surely he can heal me, she says. And just like the ruler of the synagogue, this woman has faith as well. She has confidence. She has trust in Jesus and in his power to heal her. And she might be a little bit confused on how that actually would happen, but at the end of the day, she has faith. And so she, she does, right? She sneaks up behind Jesus in the middle of this crowd and touches the fringe of his garment in order to be healed. Even though, right, we can't miss this, even though there is a risk it will make 
Jesus unclean from any normal Jew's perspective. Two suffering people, one in crisis, one dealing with chronic suffering, but both seeing their same need for Christ to help them. One who has the blessing of 12 years with his daughter suddenly ripped away the other suffering constantly for 12 years with her condition, both seeking what only Christ can do for them. One who rules the synagogue, one who's barred from the synagogue, and yet both looking to Christ for help. One at the top of society and one at the bottom, yet both in great need of Christ. Friends, this is the wonderful thing about Jesus. He is not just a Savior for some people, for some kinds of people. He is not just a Savior for this group or that group or that group. He is a Savior for all people who would believe in Him. Regardless of your background, regardless of your class, your economic status, your race, your ethnicity, your, 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 your upbringing, whatever. Just as these two people on completely opposite ends of the spectrum were there that day, they needed the same Savior. Friends, you need the same Savior that, that I do. But will Jesus show partiality like we are so often tempted to do? Will Jesus show special favor to the ruler of the synagogue and ignore this woman? After all, this is the, the ruler of the synagogue. His daughter just died. Does he have time to help this, this nobody? Have you ever wondered about Jesus' care for you? That, I mean, who am I? Why would Jesus care? care my prayers? Why would he care about me? Do you think he's too busy to deal with, with your problems? Do you think there are things more important to Jesus than helping you? Well, let's see what happens in our next verses as we see Jesus' power to make things well. Jesus' power to make well. So Jesus has just been touched by this woman with the issue of blood. Now consider the response a regular rabbi would have given. How dare you? How dare you, right? Indignation, outrage, offense. Do you have any idea what I'm going to have to go through to become ritually pure again? I'm going to have to make these sacrifices and be over here in isolation for this amount of time. But when Jesus feels this woman's touch, when he becomes aware that somebody has touched him, he responds very, very differently. He turns around and he says three incredible things to this woman in verse 22. <clears throat> First, he says to her, take heart. Take heart. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't insult her. He doesn't mock her. He doesn't look down on her with disdain. He says, take heart. That's an expression that means, be of good cheer. Be glad. There is a reason for you to be glad. That's what Jesus is communicating to her. He tells her there's good news. Next, he, he calls her daughter. He says, take heart, daughter. That's a term of, of kindness, of, of closeness, of tenderness, isn't it? He has a deep compassion for this suffering woman. Again, he doesn't belittle her. He doesn't treat her like an unclean object like others may have. But instead, he speaks kindly to her. He shows his, his love for her. And finally, he, he tells her the reason why she should take heart. He tells her her faith has made her well. 
Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus sees this woman's faith, and he responds to this woman's faith. This is really a parallel response to what Jesus said to the paralytic, isn't it? Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. He says to her, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, she's not doubted Jesus. She has not doubted what Jesus could do. But she's come to him in full faith. And, and, and it's not that her faith has magic powers or anything like that. It's not that her faith has earned her anything from Jesus. But it's that she has a genuine faith that is pleasing to God and pleasing to Christ. And he commends her for her faith. He grants her what she's seeking by faith. He tells her she will be made well. And we see that in the very next part of verse 22. Instantly, she is made well. The flow of blood instantly dries up. It wasn't the garment that healed her. It was the power and authority of Christ himself towards her. He doesn't ignore this woman, right? But in kindness, even as there's this other pressing matter going on, Jesus can handle both. He doesn't ignore her. He doesn't put her off, but in kindness, he heals her and helps her. There's another layer of what's going on here, too. There's more than just physical healing here going on. And that's true. That's, that's the reason the woman has sought out Jesus, right? I want to be healed of my condition. But we must understand that faith is only present in her because of the gracious gift of God. She didn't manufacture this faith by herself. And when we look at this word made well, it's really interesting because it's actually the Greek word sozo, which means to save, to save. To be made well, to heal, right? There's, there's a range of meaning there. I think Jesus has a double meaning that he's playing on here. He's made well the woman's physical body. He's healed her physical body. But because of her faith, she has been not just healed, but saved. Her soul is made secure as well. It's what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. He says to this woman, your faith has made you well or your faith has saved you. Right? This woman's faith in Christ has resulted in her justification in the salvation of her soul as well as the healing of her body. Can you imagine the joy for this woman this day? The burden that was lifted for her that day. Not, not, not in clean anymore. Right? Able to go be with her people, to go to synagogue, to have friends, to be with family. Not to have this chronic medical illness and on top of that, to have the joy of salvation in Christ. This is the best day of this woman's life, I'm sure. Notice two things, though, about how Jesus works here. Very interesting, right? Notice two things about how Jesus works here. First, is he made unclean by this woman's touch? No, he is not. You or I would be, but he is not. He is pure. He is righteous. He is holy. And he cannot be made unclean, just as God cannot be defiled or made unclean. Instead, Jesus' holiness cleanses those with whom he comes in contact with. We've seen this again and again and again and again. Second, notice that Jesus does not change the law to accommodate this woman. He doesn't tell her, hey, I know what the law says, but I know where your heart is at, so we're just going to just going to ignore that. Don't worry about ritual, ritual purity. It's fine. Your heart's in the right place. It's all good. But Jesus doesn't do that either. He doesn't throw away God's law. Uh, he doesn't abolish the ceremonial aspects of it at this point in time, right? Because she has faith. Because the new covenant has not replaced the old covenant in redemptive history yet. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. No. What Jesus does instead of overthrowing the law 
is he actually graciously heals her so she can meet the requirements of the law. He doesn't bring the law down, but actually causes her to meet the requirements of what the law demands, not in herself, but as a gift of grace. That's a picture of salvation, brothers and sisters. Jesus is not made impure by our sins, but he cleanses us from them. God does not lower the standard of his law so we can work our way up to it. But through his grace and perfect life, Jesus imputes to us, he gives us the gift of his own righteousness so we can meet the standard of his law in our justification. He doesn't bring down the law, but brings us up to it. And while this wonderful healing is going on, probably just took a couple minutes, uh, Jairus is probably still there. He's, He's probably waiting, watching this happen. And I'm sure that this this probably strengthened his faith. I'd be skeptical that Jairus was annoyed at this delay. But I suspect watching Jesus heal this woman strengthened Jairus' faith and gave him hope regarding his own situation. As watching God work in the lives of others can often encourage us regarding our own situation. Matthew returns to Jairus' story in verse 23, though. The woman made well. She goes home. After healing the woman, they finally arrive at Jairus' house, and they're greeted with with quite a scene. Matthew uses the word commotion. There's a commotion going on, right? There are uh, flute players there. There are uh, women wailing. There there are professional mourners there. Uh, There is quite a scene. And this was actually something that was done according to Jewish tradition. One rabbi writes that even the poorest of people, right, in in Judea, should have at least two flute players and one wailing woman uh, at their funeral. And uh, I would like that at mine, so take notes. (laughs) Two flute players and one wailing woman. And that's what Matthew's describing here, right? There's the flute players there, there's the crowd, they're making a commotion. There are wailing mourners there, professionally paid to do this. And the fact that this is occurring so soon after her death indicates the certainty that they had, that this woman was really dead. Right? That this young girl is really dead. There's no hope of recovery. She is gone. And so they're jumping right into the burial proceeding. But when Jesus arrives, when he sees the crowd, when he hears his cacophony, he has something to say to them. He tells them, go away. Just go away. Clear out. Your services are no longer needed here. There's not going to be a burial today. Why? Because... According to Jesus in verse 24, this girl is not dead but sleeping. Not dead but sleeping. Now to these mourners, this is the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard. What do you mean, Jesus? She's not dead? Who's the expert at funerals here? They know what a dead body looks like. This girl is unmistakably dead. And they laugh at Jesus, Matthew tells us. They laugh at him saying this which is kind of an inconsistent response with the wailing and mourning that they were doing just a second before, and now they're they're laughing, right? It it just shows that they're kind of completely detached from this situation. They're not really grieving, right? They're just there to do a job. That's not how Jesus approaches this situation, of course. But it does require us to ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says this? Is Is he saying she's not really dead? Is he saying that she's just sleeping and they missed something somewhere? They, they didn't get a pulse because they checked in the wrong spot? What's, what's Jesus saying here? 
Well, she is certainly dead. Right? Jesus is not denying that. But death is not the end. It doesn't get in the last word. And in fact, we find this, this, this expression referring to death as sleep uh, several times in Scripture in the context of the power that Jesus has over death. For example, in John 11 with Lazarus, Jesus says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Well, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he, he meant taking rest in sleep. John 11, 11 through 13. Or Paul writing to the Thessalonians, speaking about their loved ones who had died, Paul writes this, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So this is a, a, a biblical analogy, a biblical comparison way of speaking that we find throughout Scripture. It doesn't mean death isn't death, but it means that in the hands of Christ, death is a temporary thing for the believer, like sleep that we wake from. We're not literally sleeping when we die. It's a figure of speech. Is this girl sleeping? No. Not literally. But as we'll see in a moment, her death is a temporary one that Jesus is going to wake her from. But the crowd laughs. They don't understand. And they laugh at Christ. But it seems that Jairus puts more stock in Jesus than in them. And so we read in verse 25 that the crowd gets put outside. Right? They get kicked out of the house. And uh, once the house is quiet and clear, Jesus goes inside. And he doesn't go in alone. Mark and Luke tell us that he goes in followed by the child's mother and father and the 12 disciples. So that there, there's a small group in there. But the crowd that followed Jesus is outside as well. But notice that Jesus is not trying to impress anyone here. He doesn't say, hey guys, hey you crowd, come check out what I'm going to do. That's not his concern. His not concern is whether or not the crowd sees this. His primary concern is raising this little girl from the dead as a sign of his authority and compassion for Jairus, for the child's mother. And once inside, Jesus very simply, we read in verse 25, takes her hand and the girl arises. Now Luke tells us in Luke 8.55 that her spirit returns to her. She's brought back to life by Jesus himself. This girl who was dead, whose soul had departed from her body, is brought back to life by the power and will of Jesus. This is the greatest miracle Jesus has performed up to this point in Matthew's gospel. Calming a storm, yeah, that's impressive, right? Casting out demons, very impressive. Healing the sick, very impressive. But bringing somebody back from the dead, absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Right? Nobody has power over life or death. Nobody has power over life or death. And here Jesus is bringing this girl back to life. And it's no wonder, as we read in verse 26, the report of this goes all throughout that district. Can you believe what Jesus did this time? But here too, Jesus is touching something unclean. He's just touched a dead body for a moment. Numbers 19.11 says that whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. But is Jesus made unclean by this? No. Yet again, Jesus is not made unclean. He cannot be made unclean. By anything you bring to him, he will not be made unclean. Now it is true, there are other accounts of the dead coming back to life in the Bible, but 
there's an important difference here between these two events, uh, or, sorry, between these events in, in the Old Testament and what Jesus just did. For example, we read in First um, Kings, Second Kings, Elijah and Elisha both bringing back the sons of widows from the dead. But in both these instances, the, the prophets pray and cry out to God and ask for his help. It's not their power or touch that brings back the sons of the widows from the dead, but God. And yet here, when Jesus brings this girl back, he does by his own power and authority. He doesn't need to go ask God for the power to do it because he is God. He has the power to do it in himself. Right? He himself has the power over life or death. This is unprecedented. Unprecedented. And this power over life and death, really really this, this defeat of death that we see for a moment here, is a feature of the kingdom of heaven. As a main feature of the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> we have to remember, God did not create man to die. Right? That was not God's intent. God created man to live in fellowship with him forever. It was sin that introduced death and suffering and required the curse. But the kingdom of heaven is one of life. It is a kingdom in which the wrongs from the fall of man are put right. We read in Isaiah 25, 8, that when the kingdom has come in its fullness, God will swallow up death forever. Likewise, the prophet Hosea declares this message uh, about what the Lord will do for his people. He says, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Hosea 13, 14. Or consider the words of the Apostle Paul that describe how the coming of Christ in the fullness of the kingdom of heaven will result in the final and ultimate defeat of death. Paul writes, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The coming of the kingdom of heaven means that death's time is short. Right? And after all, death is the universal enemy, isn't it? It is the enemy that you and I cannot evade. We cannot overcome it. Right? With all of our science and all of our medicine, we can prolong life, and that's a good thing, but we cannot escape death. It's impossible. We do not have power over it. But we see here that Jesus does. That Jesus does. And ultimately, right, the direction of God's redemptive plan is not only to save his people from sin, that's huge, but tied right into that is to save his people from death as well. And as Jesus demonstrates his power over death for this little girl, he is giving his disciples, he's giving us a taste, a picture, a hint, we could say, about the even greater reality that there will be for believers at his return in the resurrection. Right? You see, Jesus doesn't just bring this girl back from death, but he gives her life. He gives her life. Jesus' authority over death uh, it is not only over death, but over life too. And in fact, the kingdom of heaven doesn't just mean the end of death for Christ's people, but it also means the gift of life, and in a much fuller sense than what this little girl received that day. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.10 that Jesus has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Right, And Jesus himself says constantly through John's gospel that he came to give eternal life to his people. Right, to those who had received death from Adam's sin and from their own sin. John 3.16, right? Most of you know it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Death is taken away and life is given. For this is the will of my Father, John 6.40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 28, I give them, Jesus says, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus does not just take away death, but he gives life, and not just life as we know it, but eternal, abundant life in him. His authority doesn't just extend to disease or demons or, or, or nature or sin, but also to death and life. You and I cannot escape death, but Jesus can deliver you from it and give you the gift of eternal life and the resurrection at his return if you trust him to save you from your sins. What an amazing Savior we have in Christ. What a beautiful thing that we can be here together as a diverse group of people from many different backgrounds and walks of life and social classes and blah, 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 however you want to cut that cake. But we have a common interest and a common need for our Savior. And what a kind Savior He is. He cares for all His people, not just the great, but the lowly too. He cares not just for those who are in crisis, but those who have been chronically suffering for years. There is no suffering that we face that Jesus will ignore or that He cannot care for us through. And while sometimes He does remove the suffering from us now, as we saw in our text, sometimes He does not. But despite that, despite that, we have faith. That's what Jairus had. That's what this woman had faith. And that is what allows us to rest in his great and precious promises of steadfast love and eternal life to remind us that even if he does not remove our suffering now, he will walk with us through it and bring about good from it. He reminds us in his promises and in our text this morning that he will in his time make all things right. All things, not 99.9%, 100%. And you and I cannot keep track of those things. We cannot balance that spreadsheet, but Jesus can. And ultimately, Jesus has the power and the authority to undo even death and its effects and to give life in his timing. And so we can take heart. It is not easy. It is not easy. Right? This... Uh, Life is often described as a, a veil of tears, right? A valley of tears and of mourning. And Jesus never promises us that there will not be suffering. But what he does do is walk with us through it and bring about good from it. And so we can rest before him. In the words of the old hymn, Be still, my soul, the hours hastening on, when we shall be forever with the Lord, when disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, Sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed. We shall meet at last. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, what an amazing, amazing and kind Savior you are. What a good shepherd you are. That you do not just care about some sheep and neglect others, but Lord, you care for your flock perfectly with kindness, with compassion, with patience, each sheep being of equal value to you, each sheep being equally loved by you. Father, I pray for those who are in the midst of suffering right now. Lord, if it be your will, I pray that you would remove that suffering from them as a display of your power and your authority. But Lord, if that is not your will, I pray that those who are suffering would know your your kindness, your compassion, your care, 
that they would know you are walking with them and that they may be able to find rest in that. Father, I pray for those who, who may think that they are um, uninteresting to Christ or unimpressive to Christ. Father, I pray for those who are thinking that they are not worth Jesus' time. Lord, I thank you that Jesus is not a person who cares about social pressures or uh, social status, but that you've given us a Savior who simply looks at us all equally as sinners in need of his grace. Father, I pray that you would draw those who, um, who have convinced themselves that uh, Jesus does not care for them. Would you draw them to Christ? Let them see his kindness, his love for them. And Father, as we carry on in this life with its trials and its troubles and its difficulties and its deep, deep sorrows and griefs. Lord, that we would continue to seek you, Lord, just like Jairus and this woman did. And that we would be reminded today that you will meet our need in your timing and in your wisdom, but that you will not neglect us. Lord, we thank you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.